Well, open your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 7. Last week, we, we started the, the climb of this very familiar but difficult part of chapter 7, and we three weeks to do it. We fixed our climbing bindings uh, to our boots last week. We, we took a breath of oxygen, and we looked up, and... Um, we have this Sunday and the next to reach the summit, which is in Romans 8, 1, where we get to, when we get there, what awaits us is a breathtaking view of a believer's unshakable security. Romans 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God before us, who is against us, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ, and, and on. From calling to glory, it's all secure. And much more in chapter 8. It will be worth the climb, but we... To get there, we have to navigate one of the most analyzed sections in all of Romans, Romans 7, verse 14, through the end of the, the chapter. And, it, and it's dissected for good reason, because there are certain parts of, of this, this section that, that's difficult to figure out, and which one, you, wherever you land, will, will lead you to interpret the passage one way or the other. Like, like who is Paul talking about here? Is Paul referencing himself, or is he using a common figure of speech for emphasis? Is Paul talking about a pre-Christian experience, or is he talking about a believer struggling after salvation, or neither? You say, well, it's very clear, it's a believer. So, okay, if it's a believer, then are they mature, seeing the true depth of their sin in this passage, or are they immature, still struggling with the old life and the flesh? I mean, we saw last week, while... All of those questions are worthy to ask. That, that's not the Apostle's main point. Nor does figuring that out keep you from, from understanding the, the point of the passage. I think it becomes evident as you work through it, which I'll, I'll show you today. But, but there's some keys to seeing your way through this, this passage. and You've read it, you've heard it, and there's just so much argumentation that's one layer, it's built on another. It's almost like you start reading it and you get past the first two verses and you go, yeah, yeah, whatever, you get to the end. It's just methodical logic, just one layer upon another. So what are some keys that will help you keep the context of the law, which is what Paul's talking about here, and see that Paul is actually putting the flesh in contrast to the, to the law. I mean, Paul is, is arguing about, about one thing in chapter 7, which, which is in light of the gospel, what's the purpose of the law? And, and he's probing the law's purpose. Why did God bring it in alongside the promise to Abraham of salvation by faith alone and grace alone? And what are the limits of the law? I think there are three preliminary keys that I would, I would just give you this morning to just kind of set your mind, point you in a direction before we, before we start to walk, help you navigate, verses 14 through 25. And the first is there's a, this is a clear indication that Paul's beginning a new section 
here. Subsection. Verse 13. Look at verse 13 again. We covered this last week. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. And what's the result? So that through the commandment, through the law, sin would become utterly sinful. And remember, chapter 6 and 7 are an intentional rabbit trail that, that Paul goes on. So chapter 5 and chapter 8 and then this rabbit trail in chapter 6 and, and 7. In the middle of his main theme, which is assurance, and he'll come back to that theme in chapter 8, there are four sections or questions to this side road that Paul takes in, in chapter 6 and and seven, you can see it by these questions about the gospel that he wants to answer. First question that he asked in Romans 6, 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Oh, this gospel of grace is, is so engulfing. It's all grace from beginning to end. Well, that brings up a question then. Shall we continue in sin that grace, grace may, may abound? Question two is in the middle of chapter 6, 615. Now he adds the law to the question. What then? Are we continuing sin since, since we're, we're not under law but, but grace? Now he brings in the law. Just do whatever you want to do because it's all grace. And because we're not under the law, does, does that even encourage you to sin further? And since he brought up the law, now he starts talking about the law in third question in chapter 7. I mean, well, if that's not the case, then is the law bad? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then question four, which we're beginning right here in verse seven, is finally then, if the law's not bad, the law's good, Paul says, then does the law have a bad result? Does the law bring about a bad result? Did that which is good then bring death to me? And each question builds on the former one. And you remember, they all come out of the end of chapter five, Romans five, 20 and 21, where, where Paul says the law was brought in, it was added so that transgression would increase. And that brings up all these questions that he wants to deal with about, about sin and grace and, and, and about the law. And Paul answers every one of the questions the same way. May it never be. He emphatically rejects the premise of the question. And, and so in verse 13, chapter 7, Paul begins this final question of these two chapters before returning to his theme, blessed assurance, Justification is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory defined. And he'll define glory that awaits us in, in, in chapter 8. And that nothing can separate us from that, that promised end. So that, that's the first, the first key. The second one, to set your mind before we dive into the passage, is I want you to note as, as you walk through this passage, Paul switches from past tense verbs as he describes B.C. days to present tense, as he talks about the law's ineffectiveness in helping a person obey God right now. He's talking about right now. Notice the shift, if you will. At verse 14, he makes a statement, for we know that the law is spiritual. He makes a statement about the law after he asks this question. Does the law bring about our death? We know the law is spiritual. And then the personal and present tense comes. But I am of the flesh. Verse 15, for what am I doing? For I am practicing, right now, present tense, what I would, would like to do. Well, I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing, right now, the very thing that I hate. 
Verse 16, but if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree about the character of the law. And look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present right now, but the doing of good is, is not. Verse 21, I find the principle that evil is present in me. I mean, this is all present tense. And he even ends this in this crescendo in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. I am right now, present. Who will set me free from this, this body of death? I mean, there's surely language in this section that's hard to reconcile to a Christian, but it's not impossible. You see what Paul's, what Paul's saying about the flesh. Like Paul's saying in verse 14, I am of the flesh, sold in bondage to sin. I mean, some say, but Paul, I thought we were not slaves anymore. To which Paul would respond, you're right, I did say that. That's what I said in chapter 6. But notice my key phrase in verse 18, which points out the sphere that I'm focusing on now. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. That's the sphere that Paul's focusing on right now. In my flesh that's yet to be glorified, sin still has the power to tempt me and, and deceive me. And his point is because of that, the law is of no help for obedience. And he explains that experience here, either before or after salvation. The law itself is good. The law is good itself, but it does not have the power to overcome sin. That's still resident in my flesh. So it's very clear that Paul is not, not, not undoing anything that he said before in chapter 6. He's explaining how the law is both good and from God, but it cannot help us in and of itself apart from His Spirit and the Spirit's power, which he'll talk about in, in chapter 8. Finally, you, just to set your, your bearings, uh, you need to remember the particular context because that's vital to see Paul's point. I mean, in all of the commentaries that, that I read, it, it, it seemed to me like what was getting lost was why Paul was writing. I'm very thankful for it. Kind of just turned over every rock that you can imagine in the commentaries. But the overstated significance of knowing which state Paul was talking about, I think took the focus off the main issue. I mean, I think you just remember Paul is answering questions of real people who were uncertain about the gospel and what he was saying about the law. And, and as he explains it, I don't think he intended to get so technical that no one could understand what he was talking about. I mean, if you forget all of the, all of the nuance, just read the letter. I, I think it will help you see it plainly. Paul was writing to Christians struggling with how the law fits in them. And in his, in his writing, it's his reflection as a Christian, and as he shows what effect it, it has on the, on, on the flesh. What effect does the law have on the flesh? And in verse 7, 13, Paul shifts to this new question. Did that which is good then bring, bring death to me? It acts like a bridge between the first question that the answers in verses 7 through 12 where Paul has shown us the law keeps us, or the law helps us, I should say, understand the depth of our sin by revealing it. And now in this new section, it's written to show that the law has no ability to help us do anything about what the law reveals. It reveals our sin, but it doesn't have any ability to help us overcome our sin. There's no power in a written code. 
He, Paul says the law is not bad. In fact, in this passage, he'll say the law is spiritual. The law is from God. But it cannot help a person overcome the problem of sin. So when he says, if sin, seizing an opportunity through God's commandment, deceived me and killed me, just like he described in verses 7 through 12, and that raises another question that the apostle must answer right? when he says, it, it deceived me and killed me. The question is then, is, God good's, good's, is God's good law to blame for our spiritual death? I mean, can the law be blamed for that? Is there something in it? That produces this result, the result of, of death. I mean, Paul answers again, may God forbid. Don't ever say that. And then he begins to explain why this is not the case and why it cannot be the case. So question one in chapter seven, does the law produce sin? Is that its end? Because there's something wrong with it. And Paul emphatically says no. The law reveals sin. The law defines sin. The law even provokes sin because of the rebellion in our natures. We see the fishing sign that says no fishing, and we think there must be big fish there. And then the second question is, okay, if it doesn't produce sin without, without our sin nature, then does it produce death? I mean, is the law responsible in some way for our death? Who or what's to blame for our spiritual death? I mean, is Paul saying, if there was no law, would we not die? I mean, like, God, if your commandments are condemning us and stirring us up, then, then if you would just remove your commandments, then there, there wouldn't be anything to break, and therefore there wouldn't be any penalty. I mean, and Paul explains why that wouldn't fix the problem, besides being something impossible for a holy God to do. Because if you remove the law, you still have the fallen flesh. Before, it totally dominated your life. You're enslaved to it, but now it still hangs around. It's still there. Even though you're a new creation, even though God's law is there, the flesh is still there. Look at verse 13. It says, rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. Paul again says sin is the culprit. He affirms the law is good. And that God did it this way through His good law so that we can see once again just how bad sin really is. And he'll continue to show us that by describing his and your experience related to obeying the law while possessing this fallen nature. I mean, even when we see what God commands is right and, and, and good, we don't always obey it or keep it fully. And so in verses 14 through 20, Paul starts talking about the flesh in general Problem's not the law, the problem's in our flesh. And then as he moves along, talking about this experience of this perplexing, wanting to do good, and, and, then, and then finding he comes up short, he, 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 toward the end, he just, he just shifts to the, to the thoughts of a believer. And you get in verses 20 and 21, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. You see how that sounds like a Christian? Wanting to do good, but finding resistance in the members of my body. And that sense builds from this methodical description that starts in verse, 20, verse 14. 
goes through verse 20. I mean, you might think of it something like describing something and describing it in general. And as they're talking about it, it gets very personal. And they go, you know what? I still have this problem. I find this principle, the evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And then as he drills down on that, he starts describing the war within, which, which leads him to think, when will this be over? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then that ends with this relief-filled praise. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as he recovers himself from that just outburst of praise, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, he comes back to the original thought. And he ends in verse 25. With so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of, of sin. And it's key to note that, that it's the law of sin, not the love of sin. That's one of the differences between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer may fall to sin, but an unbeliever loves his sin. Thomas Brooks said, sin may, be, may rebel, but it shall never reign in any saint. The whole passage can be broken down in, in three major sections. I'm belaboring this to show you the breakdown of the passage, set your trajectory before we get into it, because if you've read it and you have, you know that when you get in it and you start going back and forth, it's easy to get lost. So I'm, I'm trying to give you these guardrails before, before we plunge into it, because when we get into it, we're just going to keep walking, and it will help you to, to see the path. We're starting here and we're going there. Section 1 is in verse 14, section 2 begins in verse 18, and then the final section in verse, verse 21. And you can see this very plainly, because verse 14 begins with a statement. Look at verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual. He makes a statement, and he starts his first section. And notice he makes another statement in verse 18. He says, there's something else we know. I know also, I know that nothing good dwells in me. We know that the law is spiritual, and I know that nothing good dwells in me. Those are the two sections. And then in verse 21, he begins to draw the conclusion of both of those two statements. Verse 21, Paul says, I find then, or therefore, I find the principle in me, the one wanting to do good, that evil is present in me. That's the conclusion. And I believe based upon that, it's very clear that this is Paul's own experience related to the law and the flesh as he reflects on it as a Christian. He has a deep desire to keep the law, but he can't always do so. I mean, timing, I don't think the timing here is the point. This is not immature Paul or unsaved Paul. This is Paul who's describing the presence of the flesh in him and its effects. It's, it, it's remaining power. And I think the, uh, the key to see that is, is this repeated theme of what he finds inside. Hence the title, The Struggle of the Sin Within. Struggle with the sin that dwells within. I mean, over and over, he says, in me. It dwells in me. Sin dwells in me in verse 17. Nothing good dwells in me in verse 18. Sin dwells within me. Verse 21, evil lies close at hand, implying within him. He lays down with evil every night. That's not his wife. Verse 23, 
He says, the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he concludes in verse 25. It's this body of death because, because of what dwells within him. And at the same time, he's talking about, not only is that dwelling within me, but I delight in the law. I love it. I, in my inner man, in my mind, I, I deeply desire. And he says, you know this battle well. You know that the law is spiritual. Notice in verse 14, he says, we know, for we know. You, Paul, every Christian, we know that the law is spiritual. You also know that, that you're not. Paul says, I know that I'm not. And then as he begins to describe why he knows he's not completely glorified yet, you find yourself going, I know I'm not either because I'm experiencing this same thing, this same battle. We know that because we're tracking with Paul in this passage. That's your experience that you, you feel in this passage, isn't it? When sections 1 and 2 go together, and that's what we'll look at today, Verse 15, and 15, verse 15 and 16 shows that the law can't deliver us from what we hate. Verse 17 through 20, it can't produce the ability to do the good we desire either. And so when you put it together, you have three lamenting looks at the sin that dwells within. Three lamenting looks at the sin that dwells within. And I'll leave this up. But he starts with this declaration. There's a declaration of common knowledge. We know that the law is spiritual. And then he begins explaining, describing, there's a depiction of the source, the, where, the, where the problem is. It's not the law. Verses 15 through 17. And then that leads to a demonstration, proof of that from experience. And he offers that as evidence. Practicing the very thing that I, that I, I don't desire at times. So there's a declaration of what we know, there's a depiction of where it comes from, the source, and there's a, there, then there's a demonstration of what we experience when, when the flesh comes in contact with God's law. And he uses that to prove it. Look at the first one here. First lamenting look begins with what's what, what is common knowledge to all of us in verse 14. He says, we know, for we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold in bondage to sin. I mean, verse 14 sets the thesis for the rest of the chapter. And Paul will go back and forth between these two truths, showing the comparison. And he's answering his own question. Notice it begins with four. He's answering the, his own question in verse, thor, uh, verse 13. Is the, is the law the cause of our death? Don't ever say that. Sin's the cause. And then he begins to explain. By explaining. By stating two things that we know. We know, first of all, that the law is spiritual. And the second thing we know is that I am of flesh. In verse 13 is his propositional statement. Sin, not the law, is the cause of death. And then verse 14, for, the little word F-O-R, tells us that what's coming is the reason for this truth. But the reason for the depth of human sin and the reason that we can vindicate the law. We can say the law is not the problem. Verse 14 through 25 defends this truth by showing that the problem is with the I, who's a slave of sin. But notice Paul doesn't say he's still in the flesh, but it says Paul says, I am of the flesh, which is key to what he means. And then he illuminates 
verse 14 in these two sections, meaning in verse 15 through 17 and 18 through 20. The depiction and the demonstration. I mean, what Paul means when he says the law is spiritual and I am I am flesh is is really the interpretive question that, that you have to answer to understand this passage. I mean, Paul is answering objections to the law primarily. He's not explaining a carnal believer or giving an exposition about slavery to sin. He's answering objections about his gospel. So the law is the main topic. And he's using the presence of, of sin in our members as evidence to vindicate the law. He, here's where the problem is. Let me, let, me, let me give you a depiction of that source in you, and then let me demonstrate that to you from, from the life that, that I'm living and that, that, that you're living. He, he says the law's not the problem. It's good. And now he says it's spiritual. We know that the law is spiritual. And what he means by that is that the law by its nature has a spiritual source and therefore would produce a spiritual end if it was kept. I mean, the law is spiritual. It's simply an affirmation of where the law came from. It, it has a divine origin. Same thing that Second Peter says. No prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produced the Scriptures, the law included which means that it also has divine authority. The source of the law is from God, and because of that, it has God's authority. The law is from God, therefore it has the authority of God, which, by the way, is why people try to tear it down or explain away its supernatural origins. Now the Bible, the miracles in the Bible, they're not really miracles. It's just a, a good way to live. I mean, the purpose of that is to explain away the authority of the Bible. Because the authority of the Bible then means the Bible condemns us and sinners therefore try to condemn it. So he says, we know that the origin of the law is, is, is spiritual, it's from God. But we can't condemn it because of the second thing that we know. He says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Sold in bondage to sin. The divine and spiritual nature of the law is now set in contrast to Paul's nature. You see that? He's holding both of these up side by side. Ego me. I am. I am of flesh. Meaning composed of, of the flesh. I do not have a completely spiritual nature like, like the law. Like the law is perfect. It's good. It's holy. It's from God. While I was created originally in God's image sinless, I do not have that, that origin now. I have something else that's entered, sin. And beyond that, he, he says, the result of having this flesh is I'm sold in, into its bondage, sin's bondage. I mean, this person that Paul's talking about himself here has a defective nature, inadequate resources. He says he's fleshly, he's sold under sin, he's unable to do what he desires, and is captive to sin contrasted to the law, which is good and spiritual and holy. And the conclusion is, therefore, the person, this person cannot keep the law, which he now finds a delight in. And thankfully, we don't have to guess what Paul means by this statement, sold in bondage to sin, because in verse 15, he explains exactly what he means by that. Look at verse 15. Here's the second Look that he gives, second lamenting look. 
is a depiction of the problem source that explains what Paul means by this opening statement. Notice again, it begins with four in verse 15. For what I'm doing I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that, that I hate. The four means that the following is an explanation. So you don't have to go back to chapter 6 or outside of the immediate context to see what Paul meant by, by this statement, sold into bondage of sin or being of the flesh. What do you mean you're of the flesh, sold under sin, Paul? I mean, I don't understand my own actions at time, at times. It doesn't mean that Paul was like somebody who was senile, who can't comprehend the facts of what's happening. I don't know what's happening to me right now. I just find myself sinning. That's what Paul's saying. How do we know that? Because he's describing it here. I mean, he's describing exactly what's going on in his heart. So he's not senile. He's writing about it in detail. Again, he explains exactly what he means by this statement. I do not understand. I do not understand has two implications. It's a mystery of how sin works, how the day unfolds, how, how life unfolds. It has the idea that I don't approve of or I don't condone what, what happens. Well, what don't you understand, Paul? Well, let me explain. For I do, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. That, that, that's what's perplexing to me. That's what I mean by being of the flesh, the, with the power of sin operating in me. It's perplexing. Even when I think I'm doing good and keeping what, what would please God, then I realize I'm not measuring up. And, and when, I, when I look even deeper into the law's meaning, I mean, I think I'm, I'm keeping it because I'm doing right, but, but then I look at my motives and they're, and, and they're suspect. And when that happens, in my heart of hearts, I don't want to fall short, but... But I find that I do, and I, and, and I don't condone my, my failing actions. It's like the person that begins the morning of the day with, with a full heart. Lord, I desire to keep your law today. I just want to please you in every possible way. I don't want to sin in every way. Keep me from temptation. Keep me from the, from the evil one. And with all their heart, that's their intention. They launch into the day without any mingled motives whatsoever. And then around lunchtime or later in the day, they... They go, what happened? I fell short. (laughs) Or I looked at whatever. And Paul says, that's perplexing to me. Because I mean, I was sincere when I started out this morning. I was sincere when I went into that. But I fell short. I don't understand that. It's a battle that that goes on. Notice the key words in, in, in this verse. I don't understand... I'm not practicing, and then two expressions of desire. And that reality, that very experience, is what every true Christian faces. A Christian strongly desires to to do what pleases God, and they don't desire to break God's law. I mean, that's what Paul doesn't approve of. And he doesn't understand how he can desire so much to keep it, but find no matter how hard he tries, he, he can never quite attain because he's not perfect yet. And when we hear God's holy law and know it commands us to do something that's right and, and know it's wrong to do otherwise, but find that we come up short anyway, 
when you evaluate that, then you agree where the problem lies. You, you agree the law is good. Look at verse 16. Remember, this is answering the question, does the law bring death? Well, he's explaining this where the source of the problem lies. Verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want, if I start out desiring to do this with all of my heart and, and I'm sincere in that, but then find I, I fail, then I agree with the law, confessing the law's good. The law's not the problem. Understand at that moment the problem is not the law. It's not the commandment. And the problem wasn't my desire. There's another problem. There's a weakness still in me. Paul says in that moment of clarity, you understand the problem is, is sin dwelling in you, in your flesh. When you have a command and you know it's the right thing to do and you don't, you clearly see the problem lies with you. You, you then agree the law is good. Not a problem with the law. And whatever the reason for not doing what, what I want to do, it's not the law's fault. You recognize at that moment. So what's the problem then? Look at verse 17. So now, he draws a conclusion. So now, no longer I am the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul now draws a conclusion as to the source of the problem. It's what dwells in me. Later, he'll define me as that is my flesh, my unredeemed nature. But that brings up another question, doesn't it? What does that mean? It's no longer I, but sin. I mean, is Paul schizophrenic? I mean, is he brought into, bought into Greek dualism, which says the physical world is bad, but the, but the spirit is good? I mean, is Paul excusing guilt here? Oh yeah, I fall into sin, but, but, but that's not really me. That's my, the devil made me do it. That's my biology. That's, that's, my, that's my flesh that made me do that. Is that what Paul's doing? That's not what he's doing at all. Paul's not saying we have two natures. He's not excusing his own guilt. Paul is being very specific theologically here. But remember, he's being very logical and he's assigning blame in the right place. And here he just, he just talks about the depiction and he just narrows it down and nails where the real problem is here. Because that's the point of the exercise. What's to blame? Is it the law? No. Where's the blame? Paul says a Christian is a, is a new man or, or woman, and that person has been completely transformed. But they also still have a homartiological hangover, as our late Dr. Zimmick would, would say. And that's the flesh. There's still a hangover from the fall. There's still something hanging around. This same thing, this passage may seem confusing, but it's the exact same thing that Paul does in Galatians 2.20. It's not the only place that Paul does this, where he wants to get very specific theologically, and you have to keep it in that theological realm to understand what he means. You go outside of that, you get lost. He draws the same lines here to, to make this reality, this theological reality clear. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You say, but Paul, you're writing to me right now, so you're still alive. What do you mean you died? Well, in the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul's not dividing himself up in that verse either. 
He's explaining a theological reality. As a Christian, in Christ, I died in, in Christ. And now, I, it's the end of me, I have a new theological reality. I, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But I'm still in the flesh. And in, and in the flesh, while there's this new reality, I, I live by faith. Waiting until this flesh is gone. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I mean, so rather than this verse in Romans 7 being a verse that's hard to understand, it's actually a verse that reveals to us very, very clearly that Paul's talking about himself as a believer. He says, it's no longer I, it's no longer the new man, but sin that dwells in me. That's what causes me to fall short. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. There's nothing wrong with this new creation that, that God made. What the problem is, 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 is the, it's not done yet. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Many argue Paul can't be talking about a Christian here because he uses terms like soul to sin and describes its, its power. But he, and he just got done telling us in chapter 6 that power is broken. But if you also remember from chapter 6, Paul says that the presence of sin hasn't gone away. Presence hasn't gone away completely. You remember our analogy that Lloyd Jones gave us about we were working in this field and now we're in this field right across the road, but our old master's still across the road barking orders and sometimes we listen to him. We still hear his voice. He's not our master anymore. We don't have to obey him. And so here he's talking about the resident power in our flesh that remains in a believer. It's not the same as it was. You're not in the flesh. You're of the flesh. You still have to deal with the, with, with the sin nature that, that's left, but it no longer dominates you. It no longer defines you, which is what Paul's saying here. It's no longer I that do it. Your sin nature doesn't define you anymore. But sin dwelling in you, it's still there. Unbelievers can't say that. Unbelievers can't say that because it, it, it's not just sin dwelling in them, sends their master, sends who they are. It marks them, defines them. There's not an eye that doesn't do something in an unbeliever. There's just the flesh. There's not a new man that's longing to please God and hates when he doesn't measure up to the law, even though he recognizes he can't measure up. I mean, if that's not convincing, he explains very that very plainly in verse 18. Here's the third lamenting look. He demonstrates this from experience. He makes a statement about the law and about us. He shows us where the problem is, the source is. And now he'll demonstrate that from experience. He provides evidence for what he just said. Look, look at verse 18. Notice it's a four again. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And he makes this other statement that I know. For I know. I know that the law is spiritual. It's from God. It's of God. And I know that nothing good dwells in me, the one who is of flesh. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by dwelling in me? I mean in my flesh. He's very specific here. The unredeemed part of me that will not be removed until glorification. 
Paul's describing here what theologians call the already and not yet of salvation. You'll hear that even as we go through the kingdom on Sunday nights. There's parts of the new covenant that are fulfilled. There are parts that are yet to be fulfilled. There are parts of your salvation that are fulfilled. You're completely forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have the Spirit of God living in you. And that Spirit helps you overcome sin, even though you, you fail. But you're not glorified yet. The presence of sin remains. But one day, even the presence will be, will be removed. The already not yet of salvation. The slavery of sin is broken. It no longer binds us to where we can't choose to do wrong. But its voice and power and temptation are still resident around me. It's resident in me as a new creation. And that new creation has the power to see even what's happening. You didn't have the power to see what's happening. Did you understand the battle before you became a Christian? You didn't understand the battle. You're deceived. You're blind. Now you see it. Now you feel it. But that new creation, the fact that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, doesn't remove sin's presence. Understand, they're not two, two natures battling against each other. You have a new nature, you are a new creation, but that new creation is still encased in unredeemed flesh and living in a world that's fallen, and because of that there's temptation. Look at what else he says in verse 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. What do you mean by that, Paul? That is in my flesh. And then let me demonstrate that to you in experience. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is, is not. He's speaking in general. It brings up another question, doesn't it? It almost sounds like Paul's talking like he can't help it here. For the willing is present, but the doing of good is not. I want to, but I can't. So how's that possible? Is that what he's saying? I'm a new creation in unredeemed flesh, but, but, but I still can't control the flesh. It's always overpowered. It's not what he's saying at all. In fact, again, it's evidence that Paul's a genuine believer here. He says, I have a desire to do what's right. An unbeliever doesn't desire that. An unbeliever may desire to get out of the problem. They may desire for the benefits. Oh God, get me home tonight and I'll never do this again. Lord, get me out of this situation. They went out of the consequences, but they don't desire to do right. But there's something else that happens. Even with that desire, I don't, I, I don't have the ability always to carry it out. And So what in the world does Paul mean by that? That sounds like unsaved language. It sounds like Paul said he can't, can't help himself. And again, he explains exactly what he means. You don't have to guess. Look at verse 19. Notice it starts with four. It's an explanation of what he just got done saying. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, it is no longer the, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. He brings us back to that same statement. This battle. He's perplexed at times. He says, now I know the... This experience, you've experienced too. And, and I know the longer that you go through this passage and you're trying to drag all of this four and four and four with you and all the connections, that, that it gets confusing. But 
So let me remind you of where you're at. Verse 14 through 17 shows you where the problem lies. It lies in, with indwelling sin, not the law. So the first section, the law is vindicated. We're told that the, where the source of the issue is, it's in the flesh. And now in verse 18, he shifts the focus to how this works out in life. He's, he's providing evidence through experience. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. That's the opening statement and the restatement that he comes back to at the end. That's the source of the problem specifically. My flesh remains. And then he says, now let me, let me prove that to you from, from experience. In the, the, the normal Christian life, I find the desire to please God is there and it's genuine, but I also find the doing is not, the practicing is not always there. Sometimes the opposite is there. And then he brings us back to the same place, the source of the problem. I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Notice the emphasis is on actions and inability, specifically our inability to keep God's law perfectly, completely. He says, for I do not do the good that I desire, but the evil, that's what I keep on doing. He's describing the general experience that we all go through as Christians. He's not saying that happens every time. I mean, some days you get up and you desire to do what pleases God with all of your heart, and at the end of the day, you say, Lord, I know of nothing that I could confess. I know that doesn't equip me because I'm sure I fell short in some way. Sins I'm not even aware of, but thank you, Lord. Grace prevailed over my flesh today, and in other days it's different, isn't it? But there's now a new desire to do right. You didn't care before, but now you do. Now you care so much that you hate evil. You don't want to do it. But you're also aware that you, that you continue to sin, and while you can resist it and say no, and, and you have progressive victory, there's, there's also times that you realize the minute that you let your guard down, sin is still there, the flesh is still there. No matter how hard you try, you cannot live perfect sinlessness. And, and, and as a Christian, you genuinely don't desire to, to sin. and You don't approve of that. perplexes you when you really want to, but, but you find you, you come up short and no matter what, you're unable to achieve this, this perfection that you long for this side of heaven, which is why Paul brings us back to that fact in verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I, I, do, not, I do not desire, this, I'm no longer the one doing it, but, but sin dwell, dwells in me. You know what this says? Theological reality? Again, he's not schizophrenic, dividing himself up. He's talking about what, what's happening in his heart as a, as a believer. You know what this says? It says the evidence that you're a believer right now is not your sinlessness, but the real genuine desire not to sin. That's the evidence. And then to acknowledge that you do. You see it? Now if I do what I do not want... You see, a Christian is really the only one who's honest about their sin. I mean, an unbeliever blames the devil, blames their parents, blames the world, blames whatever. 
But a Christian says, no, I did it. I'm guilty. And, and, and I did it, and I don't want to do it. That's the evidence that you're a believer. When you sin, you don't really want to. It's something that you succumb to rather than something that you run to. And then the minute that you realize you have sinned against the Lord, doesn't that grieve you? This is what Paul finds so perplexing. You see that desire level not to sin and to please God is the first evidence of true salvation. And then progressive growth follows. And of course, if Christ is in you, you know, He must show up in fruit. And that fruit progresses and grows. Stink weeds of sin become smaller and the Spirit's fruit becomes larger. But how do you know if you're saved before fruit can be produced? Or, or before you've you lived long enough to, to show a changed life? Or when you get overtaken by the storm of sin and there's sins that waits and that easily beset you and you're sitting in the dirt of all of that? I mean... What do you do then? How do you know then? Well, the evidence is found in your desires. You have a new want to as a Christian. You might not be successful all the time because you're young or you're weak, but you genuinely desire to please the Lord. That's the first evidence of salvation. You don't want to. Before, that's all you thought about, it's all you pursued, or you didn't think about it at all, you just didn't care. Now you do care. You care so much that you set your life toward this trajectory to be holy and to be righteous and to be good. And as you set your life day by day, moment and moment toward that trajectory, and you find that you can't get there. You hate it. perplexes you. And that's an evidence that the standard's not wrong. The evidence is there's still something that God has yet to do in me, even as a Christian, He has yet to glorify me. He has yet to take away the very presence of sin in me and around me. You know, that's what's going to make heaven wonderful. I mean, I want to see my grandfathers that are there. I want to ask theological questions to the saints, talk to Paul. Not as much as I want to see Jesus. I want to bow at His feet. But if you had asked me, besides the Lord Jesus Christ, what, what makes heaven so attractive to you as a Christian, Brian? I would say that there's no sin there. And there's no sin in me there. I will never, ever, ever again, ever, be tempted to do something that displeases the one who shed his blood for me, ever. It won't even cross my mind. I won't even have to let the bird fly through so it doesn't make a nest in my head. I won't even think a bad thought, much less desire the bad thought, much less have to fight against it. It will be gone. Won't that be a wonderful place? That would be a wonderful place. And before I was a Christian, you think I thought about any of that? I didn't think about that at all. I thought, how can I do more? And next week, in verses 21 through 25, Paul will draw a deduction. So what of the section? What's the result of this conflict? Well, he'll give us the verdict. We're impotent even, even with the law, but 
what sustains us till then is is the battle and the Bible and prayer and other believers and recognizing have, have your desires changed? Can you see a very clear change? You may not see a very clear change in the fruit of your life. You may still struggle with sins. You may still stumble. You may still be overtaken. You may not even be thinking about sins that you should. You're looking at somebody else and you see it in their life. But there's something that should very clearly change. Your want to should change. Do you genuinely desire not to get out of the consequences or for the benefits, but do you genuinely, genuinely desire to do right? To do what God would be pleased with? Do you genuinely desire to love Him? Because if there's no clear change of desire, then that's where you got to go to. That's where you got to look at. That, that's really the x-ray of the, of the heart. Then you can work on the actions. Unless the, the desire has changed, unless the will has changed because you've been given a new nature, because you've been born again, then you can work on the outside all you want. You can rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic ten ways to Sunday. Unless the Lord gives you a new one to, will not be even remotely successful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that my want to has changed. I can remember my pastor saying, I sin as much as I want to. I don't want to. But even though that's true, even though I don't want to sin, Lord, I, I find sometimes I do. And it perplexes me. There's conflict in me because of it and in, in, in every believer. And I pray that to the extent that that conflict is, is in us, that that would encourage us that we're yours and would motivate us to, to move forward in, in the knowledge and grace, growth. And I pray, Father, someone here listening, whenever they listen, they don't find a change in their desires, that they would look to see whether there's really been a change. We love you. Thank you for bringing about that change in Jesus, making it possible, and doing that through your Spirit. We ask all these things in His precious name. Amen. We're going to end today with uh, parent dedication. And so I'm going to ask the parents of Daniel Allen Duncan to come. Michael and Ellie Duncan. And grandparents, Mike and Linda. Also come, if you all would, and bring the whole clan if you want to. Uh, we've done this before, but if you haven't been around, let me just tell you what's happening right now. This, this, these parents are holding this little one up before the Lord and really before you, and they're dedicating themselves, and we're dedicating ourselves to, to help them to raise this, this little one in the gospel and, and in the Lord. It doesn't save them in any way. It doesn't promise that God will save them. It's really a dedication. It's an intention. And so when we pray together, they're praying that the Lord would, would save this, this child. 
and they're they're praying that they would live a life that that's worthy, and that you're praying with them, you're committed with them in that, and you'll teach this one in Sunday school, and you'll live out the gospel in front of them, and you'll do that, and you'll fail, and, and you'll confess, and you'll show them how to do that, and all that, but. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out something that's very significant about this this dedication. You realize there's this is four generations of Timberlake right here, and these three little ones: uh, Roy and Eliza Duncan, Alan and Hunter, Alan and uh, Helen Hunter, Mike and Linda. So you have Roy and, and Eliza, Alan and Heller, Generation One, Mike and Linda, Generation Two, Mike and Ellie, Generation Three, and now Daniel Allen. Four generations of families in the gospel at, at, at Timberlake, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Let's pray that this fourth generation will walk as faithfully as the other ones, more so. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, we lift up this, this family and we lift up this, your, your child, Lord, You've created, you've made. We pray that he would come to faith in Christ sooner rather than later. We pray that, that um, Michael and Ellie would, would, would live out the truth in, in front of him. We, we, we pray that the grandparents would, would do the same. And we thank you for the legacy of faith. Think of Timothy as grandmother and mother. That would be the, the same. In this case, we love you. We thank you for a biblical church. And we pray you dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.